It's that time of the week again. It's that time when the latest episode of Digital Kill the Radio Star drops. Drop! It's time to waste another hour or so with David and Chris as they spout out more of their worthless music knowledge. It's time to hear them discuss the music of their youth. As well as the music of today. So kick back, relax, and have some fun with David and Chris. Digital Kill the Radio Star starts right now. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Digital Kill the Radio Star podcast. Hope everybody's having a good week. This is David. I am here this week without Chris, but uh, no fear. I have a very capable guest this week. It's our first three-peat guest, Mr. Kyle Null. Kyle, how's it going? Great, great. Glad to be on. Yeah, every time you're on, get good feedback. People really love that Dark Side of the Moon episode. Uh, that was really satisfying to record. It I was, mean, being one of the... I mean, it was it was a really heavy weight for us too. I mean, that's that was intimidating to try to cover that. You know, it's just like trying to like a musician trying to cover a track on from a popular album. You can't mess it up, you know. So that that was a fun one. Yeah, that was a good one. Like I said, I've uh, gotten a lot of good feedback. It's one of our more downloaded ones. So uh, no pressure on you this week. Right, right. <laughs> uh, Kyle and I are sitting here in my little man room in our pajamas. Uh, we had a late night last night. We went to see Government Mule with opening act Bishop Gunn at the uh, kind of world-famous Thalyamar Hall in Jackson. Yeah, um, it's my second time to see Mule there, I think. Yeah, so uh, I don't know if you knew this, there's two places that like the World Series, it's like the equivalent of the World Series of ballet take place, Moscow and here in Jackson. And oh, really? it's always at yeah, Thalyamar, and they've uh, they've spent a lot of money in the last couple of years renovating it, uh, and uh, it's uh, things definitely sound good in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so you and I are both big Mule fans. We'll get to that in a second. But uh, I, it was my second time seeing Bishop Gunn. It was your first time. It's my second time seeing him basically in a month after never hearing of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I went out and bought the CD at the show when I saw them open for the Marcus King Band. Followed them on uh, social media. They are a Mississippi band who uh, I, I really think big things are on the horizon. They're... Um, they were very polished sound last night. Uh, just a good rock, um, just a good rock band. And I noticed you slipped off during the show, and you came back with uh, their CD as well. Yeah, man. I mean, I, I knew two songs in. I was like, "This is a band I want to listen to again." And so I, I always try to check out uh, check out the merch booth, obviously. And if they've got a CD for sale, I'll try to buy it right then and right there, because that's when the, that's where the bands make most of their money is when they're selling stuff at the merch. There's none of the middleman. Um, you know, taking taking a, a cut of the profits or whatever, and so yeah, I was uh, I was a fan from the first couple of songs, and uh, I was I was pleasantly surprised because sometimes openers just don't have it, you know, they just don't bring it, but they they got it figured out, man. Well, and they were kind of a great band open for Mule. Um, yeah, yeah. You know that they they just really are. They're um, 
a straight ahead rock band. Um, I'm sure they're you know they have they there's some Zeppelin influence there. They're they're from Mississippi, so they can't get away from the blues influence. But um, it was a really good band. Um, I've noticed that Kid Rock's a big supporter of them. He uh, helps. I know he retweets some of their stuff, and they have a new video coming out for a song called Alabama uh, that um, that looks very promising. So yeah, Bishop Gunn. I was telling Kyle earlier we had a false start on a recording a podcast and had to start over but i was telling him on, on the false start that if i had to pick a top my top 10 right now the album natchez would probably be in my top 10 so um like i said they were really good bishop gun go uh, go listen to them and i think you're going to probably if you're like just rock music you're probably going to want to give them a try yeah absolutely so the main event last night was government mule um, kyle and i are both big mule fans and um, have seen them numerous times and uh I was just really blown away uh, by the show last night. Um, they only played one set, which was a little disappointing. Normally, it's an evening with, but I think it was because they did have an opener last night. And since that is a local band, I'm sure there was, you know, there was reasoning reasoning behind that. But mm-hmm. during the whole show, I kept going, "Well, when's the set break going to be?" Yeah. And I'm like, "Wow, like, are we going to have like a two hour and a half long set?" You know. <laughs> but uh, anyway, just one set. Kyle, I, I thought it was one of the better mule shows I've seen. Yeah, I think they were in fine form last night. Um, and it was probably I always hate to say it was the best because there could have been another one that I saw that was I felt at the time was the best. But I it's been a while since I've seen them in that form in terms of that tight as a band and um the lineup that they had picked uh, for or I'm sorry the set list rather that they had picked um they were just tight. The whole thing sounded great, and I don't know if it maybe it's the Thalia Hall uh, influence, you know, that it's just great acoustics in there, and nobody's going to sound bad, right. you know. But I just don't remember them sounding that good when we saw them last time. Um, yeah, that was a couple of years ago. That was before they renovated yeah. the, the concert hall. But we were talking last night um, after the show; they stepped up their game light show wise. Yeah, yeah, the light show was. I was very impressed, um, and it wasn't detracting to any extent. Mm-hmm. I mean, it actually accented the music very, very well. Um, but you usually just don't see that from them. They're they're kind of a straight ahead, you know. Yeah, throw some color gels on on us or whatever while we're playing. Right. But th- their lights had some movement and it kind of moved with the music. You know, I don't know. I don't know if they're picking a picking a number up from Fish or something, but or some of the other jam bands. But I was impressed. Warren Haynes is a national treasure. Yeah, you said that when you said that earlier. I thought he is. I mean, he's 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 kind of a Renaissance music man. You know, he can do a little bit of everything. Um, it's uh, you know, you were you were naming a couple of songs that they had done when Aretha Franklin died or whatever. Mm-hmm. I looked it up to confirm this because I couldn't remember because so many people did Purple Rain when when Prince died. And of course, they did a version as well. But um, yeah, he's uh, he's a force to be reckoned with. If you can if you can revive Allman Brothers from the dead and have your own uh, you know, side thing that is this thing called Government Mule, and be a singer songwriter and gets credit for things that he hasn't even. I mean, nobody knows. Like Garth Brooks, he wrote a Garth Brooks uh, a song that Garth Brooks covered, um, Two of a Kind Working on the Full House." I mm-hmm. think that was the one. Um, it's impressive, you know. He's on the new Ann Wilson of Heart CD. Oh, really? He plays on that one. You know, he did the his first solo record uh, was it "Man in Motion" was more of a soul R and B yeah it was type yeah. thing, and then he did the solo album with the uh, bluegrass folk band. Railroad, Railroad Earth. Yeah, yeah. That was Ashes and Dust. That was a solid one. Yeah, the, the thing that impresses me about him is he can play anything. Uh, he, they, they can as quickly cover Sabbath as they can do St. Stephen by the Grateful Dead. Yeah. And that's 
you know, that's amazing. Uh, I loved uh, that year. I think it was on New Year's Eve where they did all the grunge, uh, entire set of grunge covers. Yeah, yeah. You know, so you don't normally think of Warren Haynes playing Soundgarden or Nirvana, but he pulled it off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, that is that is truly impressive, but it, it also, um, it still sounds like Government Mule, you know, or it still sounds like Warren Haynes doing it. It doesn't, um, even on uh, when he covered one by uh, U2 from mm-hmm. the Live at Bonnaroo set, I didn't even know that was a U2 song. I just, I mean, I fell in love with the song and I thought, why do I know this song? And of course I look up the lyrics and I'm like, of course it was you. Like, right. why would I not know that, you right. know? But uh, there was quite a few covers on that on that live at Bonnaroo that uh, that I was pretty impressed with that I had no idea were covers until I looked them up because they sounded so different but uh, but still paying homage to the original. Well, we were also talking uh, last night. We we're both kind of the only thing the negative on it was the, their latest album, Revolution Come Revolution Go. We both considered to be either the best or one of their best. Yeah, uh, probably their best sounding album and their most diverse album as far as you know stylistically. Uh, only played three songs off of it. Of course, you know, if you go see Mule, you may get a couple of 10, 12-minute songs, which we did last night. Um, interesting enough, that jam, not Thelonious Beck, obviously we all know Thelonious, the Thelonious Beck, but the one that was really rocking, it's Jeff Beck. Oh, really? It's called Freeway Boogie. Gotcha, okay. Um, which I thought was, man, it was great. And Warren has the ability to take a song that maybe is not one a lot of people know and he has the ability to make it meaningful to you meaning like let's say the song like endless parade they played endless parade last night not yeah. not exactly when you see pl- them play just a no. ton and i would dare say probably it was probably 15 or 20 percent of us there knew what it was and the rest probably didn't and that got one of the biggest ovations of the night yeah yeah, absolutely. I love that song. Mark of an amazing musician. So, yeah, their their last album, Revolution Come, Revolution Go, go get it. You're, if you like music, good music, you're not going to be disappointed. Um, it, it to me, it would be a if, if I was going to try to get somebody into Mule, I would give them that or maybe Dose. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, to, yeah, To start with, but the album before this last one, Shout, I really like. I did too. Yeah, I, I like that they're kind of moving away from the power trio more to a little more rounded sound. Sometimes that can limit you, I think, sonically. Yeah. But they've really uh, embraced Danny as the keyboard player, and he uh, he just does a, uh, a great job. Well, Kyle is here for one reason, and that is we're going to talk about Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction. I've had a lot of people ask me, would we ever do a podcast episode devoted to this album? And I've always said in my head, yeah, at some point, we will. Well, if I'm going to do it, Kyle is the biggest Guns N' Roses fan I know. <laughs> and Kyle also is a very uh, very smart, articulate person, not only when it comes to music, but but other things. And so he gives a great uh, point of view and, and, and interesting, uh, interesting view of things. And so, Kyle, I guess... Um, You've you've told us told me numerous times if I'm if I'm correct your two favorite bands are Pink Floyd and Guns N' Roses correct yeah yeah I think that's right so who's one and who's one a oh golly um I mean it is so hard to beat Pink Floyd you know I mean when you've got such a track record uh, that they have you know I mean when you're releasing albums since the '60s until practically two or three years ago now granted in different forms as a band and to have released albums like Dark Side of the Moon Wish You Were Here Animals is probably my favorite one. 
Uh, and then the wall, like the 70s was very kind to Pink Floyd, or at least they were very kind to the 70s. I guess you could look at it either way. So it's really hard to beat Pink Floyd for me. Um, Guns N' Roses is a straight-ahead rock and roll band, and they were they came along at a time when we really needed it, you know? For some reason, uh, the, the whole California rock thing uh, was turning glam, you know? And they even had a, a few little teases of that, but you could thankfully they pulled away from it enough to just produce a rock and roll record, and and it it was you can tell that we sorely needed it because it was one of the top debut albums of all time, and um, you know when you've got other bands in that era which I also love you know, Motley Crue, um, Skid Row, and all those that that had worked in they just Guns and Roses just sounded refreshingly different you know it was gritty it was edgy uh, they talked about. You know, in the same way that, like, you know, Motley Crue talked about strippers and girls, girls, girls. Well, that's not really a Guns N' Roses way of doing it. They may, they may write a song called It's So Easy, you know, and, it, and they kind of, they kind of uh, tease into some of those themes. And to me, in a, in a, more, uh, um, uh, a more interesting way, you know, for, for, uh, for what it is. It's not straight in your face, you know. It is a, definitely a more original sound from the standpoint. I've always heard it read. I mean, I've always heard it said, Slash wanted to be Aerosmith. Izzy wanted to be the Stones, Duff wanted to be the New York Dolls, and Axel wanted to be Queen. Yeah. Oh yeah. And Elton John, um, and you, the the Queen stuff will come later, but this was a hard rock album, and at times had a punk edge to it, which they were all big punk music fans, um, and like we said, in my opinion, it's not even debatable. It's the greatest debut album of all time. And I was doing some research while we were uh, eating breakfast this morning, and I think it's the 11th best-selling album in America of mm -hmm. all time. So it's definitely one that um, you should know and have in your collection. Kyle, I'll tell you, my first exposure to Guns N' Roses is, is one of those things, like I've talked about this in this podcast before. There are certain musical moments in my life I can tell you precisely where I was when I heard first things, first songs. So when I was growing up, this would have come out when I was 11 years old. And probably starting at about age 7 or 8, I was really I was getting into music. So I would always read Metal Edge, Hit Parader, Rolling mm -hmm. Stone, Rip Magazine. And they would always have a lot of time devoted to like up-and-coming bands like Hanoi Rocks. And at the time, like LA Guns, Faster Pussycat and stuff. But there was this one you kept seeing, Guns N' Roses. And I'd never heard any of their music. And then it was on a... I remember this... I think it was 1987. Going to my grandparents' house on a Saturday night. They lived like an hour away. My parents had a station wagon, heaven, God forbid. And for whatever reason, I climbed into the back of the radio station. I had like a transistor radio. And I heard the opening to Sweet Child of Mine. Mm-hmm. I can tell you the mile marker of where I was when I heard that. And I was like, this is unlike anything. At, at age 11, I was like, wow. Yeah. This is unlike anything. And of course, then, you know, you couldn't pull up a computer and, you know, get more or anything like that. You had to go to like MTV. And of course, that song, you know, obviously we'll talk about it in great detail. That was my earliest memory of GNR. What is your earliest memory? So mine was Paradise City video. And so I got into, this album came out in 1987, so I was seven years old. And um, 
whenever I saw, I remember, I don't remember the mile marker because we were, I was, we, we didn't have mile markers uh, in the house. So we, I was sitting, right. the, I was sitting in the floor watching TV and, um, and actually I, I may have been kind of haphazardly watching it, but MTV was on and I saw the Paradise City video and I just thought, I was actually uh, really struck by Axel at first because he had that white leather jacket on that said Guns N' Roses and I just thought, man, that is amazing. I love the song, but I just love the idea of like all those people looking, they could be looking at me like I want to be a rock star, you know, so that was my first like moment with wanting to be a rock star and uh, as it turns out, I'm terrible at singing. And so all I could really do was mimic Axel's uh, hip swaying and, and, you know, the, 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 the snake-like moves that he would make. Uh, but I was terrible at singing. And so I realized that guitar was for me. And so it was that video that got me attracted to a Gibson Les Paul that, that brought me on to Slash and, uh, and actually made me start uh, wanting to learn how to play guitar. And so my dad always had instruments around the house, a, acoustic guitar specifically had an old Alvarez acoustic guitar relatively cheap it, it got its you know it, it got the work done but it didn't even have a truss rod in the neck it was one of those that you know if too much humidity got to it there was no fixing it you know and I uh, started learning on that and then um that very next uh Christmas I got a um I got my first uh, Fender Stratocaster Squire which is essentially like the cheaper version of, of a, a Fender Strat and really picked that up took some lessons and then that next uh that, that next Christmas, I got my Gibson Les Paul studio that I still own to this day. Uh, that's uh, that's an amazing guitar. And so I know that wasn't exactly your question, but that my first experience with Guns N' Roses was that Paradise City video, and it literally changed the course of my life in terms of the instruments that I played. And that video was recorded when they were opening for Aerosmith, isn't that right? Yeah, that's in, right. Like an empty in a in a big stadium. Yeah, um, it was a, it was filmed at the Giant Stadium in New Jersey, um, and then also at the Monsters of Rock Festival in Donington. So if you watch the video, um, there there's two cuts of it or whatever. So one that's just straight on with the band, and you don't see a huge crowd. Or in the few times that they'll kind of pan the camera, it's not a they're not playing to a huge crowd. They're just getting some some cuts for the for the video. But then when you do see a huge crowd, that's the Donington crowd. Because um, they are, they were just opening for Aerosmith, but at Donington, I mean, there's like several hundred thousand people, and they don't leave. You know, right. whereas whereas a uh, you know just like last night at the show, people were still kind of trickling in in the middle of the opener set. You know, so but yeah, that was um that was that was it for me, man. That was hands down it. So from there, you go and you you buy that. Do you buy the cassette? Do you buy the CD? Or do you <laughs> well, buy the, the vinyl? So Tipper Gore really messed with my life. You know, so I, when I first got into Tipper Gore, you know what I'm, so getting into the whole explicit lyrics on albums. So, um, I first realized that I was going to love rock music when Bon Jovi, Slippery When Wet, uh, You Give Love a Bad Name video came out. And that's, I'm not particularly proud of that, but that's exactly, I was like, wow, this is amazing. Like my mom's been exposing me to like country music and I'm just not connecting with it, but this is awesome, you know? And, um, and so I'm not a huge Bon Jovi fan as it is now, but, but that video was really something for me. And so you can go out and buy that one because they're the, the smiling rock stars. You know, they, they don't have like really bad uh, lyrics or whatever. And so right around the time, I actually went to the library. So at the library, you could check out CDs. And um, I checked out uh, Appetite for Destruction. And this was around the time that it was right around when they started putting explicit li lyric stickers on things, but not all of them were consistently done. And so um, 
I, I ended up getting that one. Nobody questioned it at the library. It's like they, I don't guess they knew because we all they also um, rented videotapes as well, and so they knew that I couldn't rent as a nine-year-old or eight-year-old or however old I was. I couldn't rent an R-rated movie from the library, um, but this one they didn't check me on. So I got it and I I, I ripped a tape of it because it was a CD, and so. Um, then after that, I started begging my mom because I actually wanted the CD, and that's when she got wise to the whole explicit lyrics thing, and she really needed to question it, you know. And this is despite the fact that I'm watching R-rated horror movies that cuss and have nudity and all that, but there was something fundamentally different about music. Like, I just couldn't listen to a bad song. I can watch an R-rated movie, but not a bad song. And so that, re Tipper Gore really messed with me on that one. And, um, as it turns out, I would go into the Sound City, or Sound Shop, one of the two, I don't, it was in the mall in Meridian, and um, I would flip through the records and just kind of daydream about owning them. And um, as it turns out, Lies was the first album that I bought. And it was because they did not put the sticker on Lies. And so I was able to purchase it. And that one's pretty mild anyway. Um, and, and, but, uh, but, I was, but half of them, it's kind of like going to uh, FYE and you can find something on sale for $5 and you flip one pass in and it's $17.99 for the exact same thing. So it's like a treasure hunt. You just need to find the one that got marked sale on it. This was the same deal. This was a treasure hunt and I found the one that did not have explicit lyrics. I walked up to the counter and I swear I felt like I was trying to buy alcohol as a nine-year-old or 10-year-old or whatever. I just, you know, because I just felt like they're going to catch me. This is going to happen. You know, I'm going to I'm gonna try to hand in my money and then I'm going to have to dart out the door. You know, I, I really planned this thing out, you know. I knew where my exits were. And uh, no, I mean, the, the hippie behind the, the counter, he didn't care. and he, did, he probably wouldn't have cared if I got, got the explicit lyric one, but I just felt dangerous when I was doing it. So yeah, my first um, my first Appetite album was a ripped, or not a ripped, that's what you'd call it now, but it was a dub, or what do you call it, when you when you record from a... My dad had a stereo system, yeah. and he had a five or six CD changer, and um, and I he also had a tape deck in there, so I just pulled it from that. That yeah. was my first Appetite so, and I eventually bought it when I either convinced my mom that it was, you know, they're good, wholesome people or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I remember uh, I remember getting it. Actually, I remember going and buying like a single. And I forget what song it was, but the B-side was It's So Easy. And I think it was a live version of It's So Easy. Oh, okay. Uh, that may I, have been the one that made the um, made the, the remaster yeah, side B. If, if I remember correctly. And... You know, Sweet Child of Mine, the girls loved it, the guys loved it. It was yeah. one of those rare, it's it's technically a ballad, but a lot of people don't think of it as a ballad because it did not it did not sound like a ballad at the time. It was not a Rose Has It's Thorn or no, no, it didn't. Hysteria or something like that. But if you take that song off that album, the whole album doesn't sound like that. You right. know, that's the only song that sounds like that. Right. So, uh, you know, they, they knocked around... Uh, LA for years before they recorded this album various incarnations of the band various people in there you know Tracy Guns was in it of course he left and went on you know do LA Guns which was not a good career decision for him mm -hmm. um, you know and uh, Axel comes from Indiana Izzy comes from Indiana slash his mother is this woman who worked in the arts industry, I think she like designed clothes for like David Bowie yeah, and, yeah. and things like that. And it's he, wild to read Slash's biography, uh, or autobiography rather, um, that just to hear the people that were around his life. Just one being living in L.A., he was around actors and various people. Right. Uh, and I forget the guy who gave him his nickname, but it was like, it's a famous actor that gave him his nickname Slash and that just that carried or whatever. But yeah, for his mom 
to have been dating David Bowie and the types of people they would bring over to the house. That's that's kind of a semi-charmed kind of life, you know? <laughs> it is, it is. And it sounds like he had kind of a, I don't think he had a lot of parental um, guidance no, in his no. young days. And of course, Stephen Adler and him, best friends from uh, their elementary school days. And of course, Duff, kind of the outsider from Seattle mm-hmm. that, that fit in with them. And... You know, they got this reputation of being just this great live band, but also very dangerous band. Um, they they walked the walk and talked the talk when it came to, you know, to the sex, drugs, and, and rock and roll. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, very early on, chemical issues abound for yeah. them. Izzy's even a drug dealer at one point. And, you know, they lived in this alley in L.A. And, and you know, just really... They really earned their success from the fact that they they bought in to the lifestyle and we're going to have to practice hard, but we're going to play hard. And they get signed to Geffen, which at the time, Geffen really wasn't the Geffen we would know it to be. I mean, it was Mm -hmm. just starting to to take off and Mike Klink became the the producer. And like I said, when the album first came out, it really didn't get a lot of attention. Um, And it got panned somewhat by critics. And then, of course... Sweet Child of Mine and Welcome to the Jungle and mm-hmm. Paradise City uh, come out. Before we do our track-by-track track breakdown, just kind of your thoughts on how they got there um, to to making the album. I mean, you know, we've both read books on them. You're obviously a lot more well-versed on them than I am. But just kind of maybe lead us up to how we get to the point where they walk into the studio to make appetite yes i mean prior to that they had um and there's even pictures out there of them playing like frat houses kind of stuff you know and uh, you think wow like how how amazing would that have been if you were if you were (laughs) if your frat house had had hired this no-name band that in just a couple of years is huge you know and so like you said they they played a lot around la and they even did their first their first road trip that really made them solidify as a band uh was just fraught with errors uh but they they did a sort of their first little mini tour was all the way up the coast and they were going to end up in Seattle and play a show up there. And I mean, between the van breaking down, equipment getting stolen, all that kind of stuff, it was really a bonding experience for the whole band. And uh, and they'll quote, I think in Duff's book and in Slash's book, they've separately said that that was like, that's what really solidified us. You know, so that was, and I've had those moments with people before too. You know, you go through a hard time and you pull through together and you're like, wow, like you got my back, you know. And, um, I think that was something else about them that was distinct is you just didn't mess with them. You know, they were they were a small family, you know. Uh, but they had, they had done a lot of touring and uh, had been working on a lot of songs. And even, you know, when you mentioned, uh, which I love that your observation or the observation that you had quoted from somebody about, you know, Axel wanting to be Queen and, you know, uh, uh, Slash wanting to be Aerosmith, all that. I mean, they had written November Rain and some other ballads, Don't, Don't Cry, hit prior to, I mean, to the recording of this album. They just didn't make the album. Um... So they were already there, you know. They were already writing those big, big epic, uh, epic pieces. It just doesn't. It, it didn't fit what this debut became. Um, and so, anyway, uh, they recorded some live stuff as well, but they ended up not releasing until after. So that's the Lies album that we were talking about. That's half. Uh, ha- the first four songs are them playing live in various places, and the and the next four are uh, studio acoustic sh- songs. And so um, they were do they were doing that. And ended up going into Sound City, uh, which is a great documentary on. Uh, I think I might have seen it on Netflix, and you can I think you can get it on Amazon now for like ten or twelve. The Dave Grohl one. Dave Grohl, yeah. 
he's got to, he's got several good uh, things that he's funded like that. But that's a really good documentary. If you want to, Sound City was such a um, it's kind of like Muscle Shoals. Which there's another good documentary on that one as well. But Sound City is um, it is a place where a lot of really important records got made. And so their first uh, pass at this is actually on the remaster version. They released these. Uh, as um, as as the second CD, um, they're calling B sides, EPs, and more. Uh, you can hear the first iterations of what this what this amazing debut album was going to become. And for the most part, because they were playing them live so much, they had them kind of figured out. There was a couple of songs, um, you know, the iconic intro to Night Train. You know, you've got the the three. Uh, three or four hits on a cowbell, and then that that A that'll like that A chord that'll just like kick you in the ribs. Um, that wasn't on there. They went straight into the to the the next little melodic piece. That, that's what they went straight into. And I love the fact that they added. Um, and I don't know if that was the influence of having a producer saying like, yeah, you've kind of got a song, but we need to make it a song. You know, At, same thing with Paradise City. Paradise City didn't have the iconic uh, G chord opener that's the the little strumming part it just went straight into the, the kind of the drums hitting the snare so um really interesting to hear what the pre-album became uh those are 1986 and by 1987 um they had uh, they had put down what is now Appetite for Destruction uh what, what came out and uh added a couple of songs to to their 1986 mix they actually had recorded You're Crazy as an, it was an acoustic song that they had, and uh, and I should probably wait for this for the track by track, but I'll go ahead and share now since I'm at it. But um, they uh, they needed another song basically to fill up the album, and they had they had been playing that acoustic track, but this this album was not an acoustic album. You know, it it just was not going to fit, and so they actually sped it up and turned it into a rock you know rock song instead. So um, yeah, that was kind of the. I'm sure that if we had another hour, we could do a better history of leading up to this album being recorded. But there was a lot of live playing, and you can tell by the time they got into the studio and hit record. You know, I don't know. If, I don't know if you can make the claim that a lot of these were one takes, but I mean, they were a tight band by then. And they go with Mike Clink to produce it. Now, correct me when I'm wrong. At one point, did they talk to Mutt Lang and also Paul Stanley? Yeah, so they turned down. Uh, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. So, um, can you imagine wanting to make it, living in the streets, and then you get an offer for Paul Stanley to produce your album? I mean, I can't imagine me being in a position to just say no to that because I'm like, well, God, this could be my big break. They had the cojones enough to say, no, you're not going to do it right. You're going to try to turn us into Kiss, and we aren't Kiss. God bless them for that. I cannot imagine what they would have been like had they gone with that. Um, same thing with Mutt Lange. Mutt Lange was he was pretty big at the time, right? Producing a lot of Back uh, in Black, Pyromania. So, and it's hard to argue with like Back in Black. It's not like he's producing poppy stuff, you know. And, right. and I know that uh, Guns is a uh, an ACDC fan. In fact, this is another B side that they put on here, or not B side, but cover they put on here was a whole lot of Rosie. And that they debuted a couple of uh, ACDC songs in their Not in This Lifetime tour. And Axel was the front man for ACDC. So like. It's hard to not look at that and say, well, yeah, we'll take you. But they knew that they wanted a very particular sound, and they didn't want it to sound overly processed, and they thought that Mike Klink was the guy to do that, to give them the um, the engineering that they wanted from this, to, to make it sound like a raw rock band, which I think he did a phenomenal job of. Did a, he definitely hit the nail on the head on that one. All right, so the opening song is Welcome to the Jungle. 
the I mean, what better way to start off your debut album with one of the more recognizable opening riffs to a song? Yeah, uh, you can make an argument. This is one of the greatest opening songs of all time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's one of the so at Slash is not real big on using effects. You know, it was actually not it, not very fun being a guitarist because like, what do you want to do when you're a guitarist? Like, well, I want a really good guitar. I really wouldn't get an amp. And then I want to put a bunch of effects, at least this is the way I was, I want to put a bunch of effects between it, because like, that'll, you know, they, they look cool, you can use a wah, and you can use delays and all that. And then I would read in magazine, guitar magazines, like, what's Slash's setup? He's like, I basically just plug straight in. I'm like, oh, come on, that's so uninteresting to me. But like, he was a great guitarist, he didn't need to lean on some of that stuff. But this is the one time that he used, or one, one of the few times that he used an effect. Um, and uh, to... to the opener would not sound the same without that effect. You know, it's it's not like just adding a little bit of a delay or a little bit of reverb. You you cannot play that opener without that effect and it sound right. Um, so yeah, that was a. It still gives me chills to hear that opening. You know, if I, like I went to a hockey game, a minor league hockey game, and and anybody who follows anything about hockey, which I don't, um, but anybody who who follows anything about it, you go to minor league hockey games to watch the fights. You know, you don't really go to watch the game. At least I didn't go. And it actually was when the Jackson Predators were around. I don't know if they're still around. But um, but anyway, uh, uh, every time somebody would throw their gloves off, they would cue up. Dun, 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 dun. And just that intro, man, just it made me want to fight with the guys, you know. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, one of the most um, iconic openers to a song. Uh, and it, it really describes Axel's journey from Indiana you know, being a small town white boy, as he puts it in, in some other song, uh, and then being thrust into the weird <laughs> megacosm that is L.A., you know. And I got to admit, I feel that when I go out there, too. Yeah, the, 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 well, there's, a th there's a theme running through this album. A lot of these songs are just true life stories. Mm -hmm. And this is one when Axel gets off the bus from Indiana to L.A. and... Uh, you know, it's basically it's his awakening. Hey, man, you're not, you're not in Kansas or Indiana, <laughs> right? You know. Yeah. Uh, I the, very much felt that way when I went to L.A. Um, I had to go there for work, and uh, ended up I, I took a walk down Sunset Strip because I wanted to see where all of my big, you know, all the bands that I love cut their teeth. And so I went and I sat and ate at the uh, Rainbow Bar and Grill, and uh, this was right after Lemmy had died, so they had like a little tribute thing there to Lemmy Kilmeister. Uh, Minister, Meister, 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 yeah, and um, and so I ate there, and and uh, and then I walked, ended up walking the whole thing, saw the Troubadour, and saw well, actually Troubadour's a little bit off off the street, but um, I was gonna go eat at Mark Cantor's Deli, uh, or Cantor's Deli rather, which is where Guns and Roses, uh, there's a famous picture of them all just sitting in around this booth, and that was at Cantor's Deli. Mark Cantor was Slash's uh, best friend back in back in in elementary school, middle school, and all that. And so um, I was going to go eat there, but I just never made it around to it. But I felt like I, I got it. Like me being a small town person and then seeing acts uh, and, and then getting to L.A. rather. And then uh, having that feel, that feeling of like, I am not supposed to be here. Everything here is just a little bit different. You know, everything's just a little bit weird, you know. <laughs> and um, I get it. I totally understand that song. The next song is It's So Easy. This is one of the songs, I think, uh, that probably gets one of the better reactions from the crowd that's played off this album that's not one of the hits. Yeah, yeah. It's got that iconic uh, bass line opener, uh, one of the few times that, that um, 
Duff really gets to to shine. The other the other is probably in his little walk down from uh, from Sweet Child of Mine, but it's it's good. It's gritty. Uh, Izzy Stradlin's influence all over this one. Absolutely, yeah. You can you can tell the uh, the Keith Richards um, uh, rhythm influence on on this one for sure. I think when I saw them in New Orleans, this this may have been what they opened with. They usually will open uh, with "It's So Easy" or "Night Train." Those right. are the two kind of big openers that they do. All right, so "It's So Easy" is very pretty much a straight ahead song. The next song is "Night Train," and we were talking about this. One of the you know what's coming when you hear the. the I love the crack of that cowbell, man. Yeah, I love it. Um, gives me chills, and this is one of my favorite songs to play. Um, I love I love the fact that the. Uh, that slash the little opening uh, riff that he does that that Axel really mimics something. I love playing that on guitar because uh, of the the he, it's not just a single string thing like it's like chords within chord kind of things. If if I could get too detailed on that, but um, love the song and as it turns out, you know we were discussing this before, saying. Uh, this one's gonna. This podcast is gonna be a little bit different than the Dark Side of the Moon because we're not really gonna have philosophical discussions about greed and death and you know uh, and, and uh, morality and those sorts of things. This is just gritty rock and roll. So there's not a whole lot we can say about a lot of these other than like yeah, the topic of this song, Night Train, is about a really cheap bottle of wine or like a wine mixer kind of thing that they would buy um, because they were poor. And um, it's kind of like the Boone's Farm equivalent. I mean, I guess I don't. I don't know what else would be uh, here that we could relate. I've never seen a bottle of Night Train. Me either. But uh, but out there, it was what you got for like six bucks for a fifth of it or whatever. So um, and it was about their experience with that, you know. And 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 we'll see some more themes with that when we get to Brownstone. They're talking about drugs in that one, you know. It's just a real life experience. Not a lot of philosophy. Well, the fourth song out to get me is a true song, a true story. Uh, revolving around Axel and some of his mis, uh, misdeeds when he was growing up in Indiana and constantly being harassed or being chased by the police. I love this song. Um, I love the just the, the opening riff to it. Uh, it's a lot of fun to hear live. Lizzie Hale does a great cover version of this. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Uh, but just basically Axel talking about all the trouble he stayed in while he was in Indiana. Yeah, I gotta admit, this is probably one of my least favorite songs on the album, um, and I don't really know why. And I don't know if it's like, it, it, I don't know. It just doesn't feel the way the the rest of the songs do. To me, "Think About You" is probably my least favorite one. I can deal with everything else, but I, I don't know why I have just never taken to this song. And it was all it shocked me when they play it live. But I guess clearly, you know, if you said it's one of your favorites. This is just one that I, I bet you could you could poll people who were deep track people and they would either love or hate this one. Um, this seems to be one of those types, you know, and I, I just don't know what it is about it. It's a solid song. It's a straight ahead rock and roll song. I get it, but I just, I don't know it's what it is. It's played a lot. Yeah, it does. All right, so song number five is one of my favorites on the album, Mr. Brownstone. Yeah. A very, uh, very unique song, tempo-wise, mm-hmm. for, for this album. Uh, obviously, it's about doing heroin. Yeah. Used to do a little, but the little wouldn't do, so the little got more and more. Just yep. keep trying to get a little better. So the little better than before. Yeah. And I love that line, man. Which uh, sounds like the life of a heroin addict. I remember uh, in one of the books I read when they uh, went on tour with uh, opening for Aerosmith. Of course, it's when Aerosmith was stone cold sober. And they made them backstage or whatever. Izzy, or 
Joe Perry or somebody realizes that he thinks Izzy has sold him heroin before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, great version of this song on the um, those uh, live, at the time they came out, videotapes from uh, Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, with the later incarnation of the band that I really like. What are your thoughts on Brownstone? I love Brownstone. I love the kind of tribal beat at the at the beginning, the drums, uh, the drums and kind of guitar playing off one another. I mean, it, it's a great intro to a song. Perhaps not as iconic as Night Train, Welcome to the Jungle, or Paradise City, or uh, even you know Sweet Child of Mine, of course. But it still is a great intro, and it, I've never heard anything like it. You know, I mean, you you think to a what is it, Aerosmith's Get a Grip that's got the little tribal thing at the intro or whatever? Mm-hmm. It's like it's not like that either, you know? It's just so unique and different, you know? But I, So I, lo- I love this song, yeah. Well, one of the unsung heroes of Guns N' Roses is Steven Adler. And once he left the band, Izzy has said that, like, it wasn't the same. Mm-hmm. Now, I know nothing about drumming, but people that do know about drumming say that he had a certain swing that you can't teach. It's just a, he's not a great technical right drummer, but he's a great drum rock drummer right. And this is you know one of the moments he really gets to shine on the album. Yeah, I think it was in Slash's book that he uh, he said that like at some point you know Stephen had gotten a double bass drum. Uh, I'm sorry, a double pedal for his single bass drum, and he said they were starting to sound too metal. And it it, it was like because you kind of have to go that way when you do anything with double bass, you know, because like Metallica, think think Metallica one, you know, that's a double bass, right? Um, and so uh, they said, yeah, basically, Stephen went out the room to go get his fix or go to the bathroom or whatever, and they like they literally took took the double pedal thing away and just gave him the single pedal. He never asked about it, and they never said a word about it, and that that kind of changed the way that their song was, their sound was. But it's hard to have a four four beat if you're trying to do something different with that double bass. But uh, yeah, and I agree. I'm not very uh, I don't have very much knowledge about the technique techniques of drumming and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but I've 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 heard the same thing about his swing and how how he added some swagger to the drum set, but technical abilities maybe weren't quite there. Where, like, Matt Sorum, he seems to be a much more technical drummer. He actually was, um, at least to some extent, classically trained. People like to say that. I don't really know what that means for for rock drumming, but he was helping Axel with some of the arrangements for November Rain and, and how that would sound. So, I mean, I know he's definitely... Uh, more technical than Steven would be, and and it did make the band sound different. I don't. I grew up with Guns N' Roses was Matt Sorum as far as the drummer goes. By the time I really got into him, and I was able to buy my own albums and all that, but uh, but yeah, you can definitely hear uh, Steven's influence on Mr. Brownstone. All right, so track number six, one of the heavy hitters of the album, Paradise City. It was basically written about the ill-fated trip up to Seattle, and them coming back, wanting to get back to L.A. where. They'd have a van that worked, and, you know, <laughs> yeah. and they'd have their own gear. You know, in as far as I know, ever since they've made it, has been the closer. Yeah, that's um, one of their favorite ones to close. And and if you can get uh, Slash to answer the question, "What's your favorite song to play live?" Sometimes they say, "I love them all," that sort of thing. But he pretty consistently goes back to like it's Paradise City because it's a you can jam on it. You know, jam on it. I love the like you're saying the beginning, the, just the simple strumming. Mm-hmm. Several tempo changes in the song when Adler kicks in with the boom, mm-hmm. boom, boom. It's yeah. just great, and by the end, it's just straight up pedal to the metal, borderline 
thrash. It's one of the few songs yeah. that they are one of the few times that Guns N' Roses really goes off. You know, um, there's a couple of others that they'll do live that they'll go off on, um, but but yes, yeah, that's one of the few times that they just let loose. Um, like you said, the video was was a big hit. Uh, song you hear played all the time. Hear it played in stadiums, sporting events. Um, really, uh, not a whole lot else we can say. So we're going to flip the side, so to speak. Yeah, side yeah. two, My Michelle. Now this is a song that I feel like people just really, that a lot of people really really like, and it. I don't hate it, but I never have understood the love that certain people have for it. Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of with you. Um, I won't skip over it the way that I will think about you. Uh, to me, think about you should not have been on the album. Um, it, but, I mean, I guess it fits to some extent, but I don't feel about it the way I do with that one, but it's not my favorite either. You know, it was a, again, this was a true story. Um, I forget the person's last name, but her first name was actually Michelle. And uh, her, as it turns out, after her mom died, her dad worked in porno, and like it, it's just, it follows the lyrics uh, uh, to a T. And um, they were writing it as a, is a true to life story about this person Michelle who's sort of a groupie that hung out with them and uh, they were a little nervous that they were going to um, offend her by writing her into the song because they were telling about the you know the side of her life that's maybe not as pleasant um, her partying and you know again her, her parents and that whole thing and as it turns out she loved it she loved the fact that they attributed her uh, in, in such a way and, and that they had done it in, in a truthful way and so uh that it made the album as a, as a result. It, a lot of times back in the 90s when they would play this, they would intro it with the uh, with a guitar. With, is this the one they would intro with Slash playing The Godfather? Or is that Sweet oh, Child of Mine? Um, no, because so for the, or the Japan um, User Illusion 1 and 2 yeah. uh, tour, uh, that was when I first came in contact with them playing The Godfather. Um I, no, they, okay. I don't think so. Not that one. I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a blank right now. But uh. All right, so we're going to the next song, Think About You, which is obviously your your least favorite on the album. It's not my least favorite. I honestly don't mind this song. I love the, the, the chorus. It's a little bit of a, um, a little bit of a break from some of the harder, crunchier uh, yeah. songs on the album. I understand why people don't like it, but it's never one that's really upset me I, I don't skip it like you know you say that you do mm -hmm. yeah i mean i gotta be honest um so i just looked this up because it was gonna bother me and i wouldn't be able to finish if i didn't so uh speak softly love which is the love theme theme from the godfather they go straight into sweet child of mine okay. i thought that was the one um my michelle i don't know if they played that that's no, not on this one not that i'm seeing right now but anyway i'm sorry so uh to think about you yeah it wouldn't bother me just to skip it i mean to me this is and you, you mentioned earlier, we'll probably get to this in a little bit, Shadow of Your Love. That was like another, like, if Guns N' Roses is going to write a love song, it's probably going to sound like Shadow of Your Love. Not, It's probably not going to sound like, at least not until they wrote Sweet Child of Mine. It, they didn't sound like that. Think About You is one of those, like, it's kind of a Guns N' Roses love song. And that's why I think I don't like it. I also am not a big fan of Shadow of Your Love. And I think it was appropriate that they did not put Shadow of Your Love on this album to me, Think About You should have been dropped off just the same. The next song is the one that put them on the map. Sweet Child of Mine. Unreal. Written about... Uh, when did, uh, Aaron Everly. Yeah, yeah the Everly yeah. Brothers, one of their daughters. Uh, like we said, we don't you don't think of it as a ballad from the, from the sense of when it came out. It didn't sound like, we said, like hysteria, 
mm-hmm. you know, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. But if you listen to the lyrics, um, it clearly is. Clearly. Yeah. And probably the intro, probably one of the three or four most recognizable intros. And it was a scale that Slash used to play to warm up, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It, this is the song that could have not been made, at least not made in its in its current format. Um, Slash, rather than playing scales, which are kind of admittedly boring, you know, you just go that over and over again, he would develop little patterns that he would do. And this was one pattern that he developed that he was just playing just to play, just to warm his fingers up. And then one day, um, I think it was Axel who said, "Hey, play that thing that you that, that you play sometimes." And he's like, "I don't even I don't know what you're talking about." And so he had to cycle through a couple of things before he landed on like, "Oh, that thing," you know, that the little pattern that he made up. And they wrote, excuse me, they wrote the song around that pattern. Um, and it turned out being great. I mean, I can't believe that that was almost a throwaway thing that he was doing. You know, if I stumble upon writing something like that on guitar. I mean, I'm I'm just impressed myself that it accidentally happened. Whereas, you know, I just cannot believe that that was uh, that was almost going to be the case. Love the video for it too. Um, in contrast to the Welcome to the Jungle video, it, they they were making me nervous with that video, uh, just because they they did the whole teasing hair thing. It was kind of a mix. Like Axel had some teased hair at times, and then some straight hair at times. Um, I, this is where the band started looking like the band as we know it, uh, was the Sweet Child of Mine video. And I guess to some extent the Paradise City video, but it, nothing like Welcome to the Jungle, though. All right, so the next song is You're Crazy. We kind of went over that uh, beforehand. I actually prefer the version that they play on the live era, which the slow version, but it's electric. Oh, but, okay. But on this, on this version, this is a wide open. Yes. Um, wide, yeah. o- wide open rocker. Um, much kind of like the end of Paradise City. They're they're full tank of gas and they're going with it. Yep, yep. I mean, is it a song that you like, or is there a different ver- version that you prefer? I probably prefer the acoustic version on Lies the best. Um, I just it's a it's a great straight ahead rock and roll song. Um, I probably should have to put a quarter in a jar every time I say straight ahead rock and roll, but that's what this al- this whole right. album was. Um, to me, it sounds like once I learned that about that they were trying to come up with another song to fill an album, and then they rather than writing another song, they just adapted the one that they already written, made it faster. It sounds like that to me. To me, it sounds better acoustic and slow. Um, I didn't. I'd have to go back and listen to the live era because I don't even think it's dawned on me that it was what, what how you described it. It didn't even. I hadn't. I haven't thought about yeah, that. Go back and listen to it. Uh, that's that's the version that I prefer. Yeah. To listen to. All right. So. Track number 11, Anything Goes, this is my least favorite track on the album. I think it just sounds weird, cluttered. I, I just, it yeah, does nothing for me. You could almost put this, this was like a precursor to my world on Use Your Illusion 2. It's like, you get to it, you're like, what is this? You know, but of course it's not quite my world. Because <laughs> that was a really wild, a wild one to come from a Guns album. And to the extent that if we ever cover Use Your Illusion 1 or 2, um... Uh, that was just a weird one. You know, that that's one that, that uh, probably shouldn't have been there. The band didn't even know it existed. This one, you can tell the band had their hands into. And I actually like the intro. Uh, this is one of the, this is the introduction of the talk box uh, that Slash uses on there. And so I liked it for being a guitarist. I liked that part of it, and, and that's part of the reason why I wanted to get a talk box. Um, I, I, I will say, I don't skip this one. I like this one okay. Um, 
it's short. Like it, you know, it, it's not it's not imposing. It doesn't last a, a whole long time, you know, and it, it shouldn't because Rocket Queen that we'll get to next is a really kind of a an epic uh, one, uh, so to speak. But I like this one, and it ties together the original album cover, which it, we we kind of skipped over this part. But the album cover, as you see it, which is the the very iconic. Uh, oh man, that's another one of those words. I owe you like four dollars now. Um, but but the very the crosses with the skull uh, and their paintings, you know the the their, I guess their head you know heads painted on it or whatever, um, that was not the original album cover. The original album cover was going to be uh, this picture that I'm opening up right now. Uh, a guy named Robert Williams uh, painted this in 1978, and it's got. Um, you, you just have to go look at it, but this is what they wanted the original album cover to be: was this robot who uh, was a, apparently had pillaged uh, this, you know, this girl and and messed up, uh, <laughs> messed her up a little bit. And there's a line in Anything Goes: panties around her knees, got her ass in the breeze, doing that grind with a push and squeeze. So that's the one lyric in that that ties to that to this original album cover. Well, when they tried to push this out, you know, Geffen was pretty straightforward in terms of letting the band do what they wanted to do. Uh, but this is one that just wasn't going to happen. We weren't we weren't going to have an opening debut album that we think is going to be this big, and then have issues with stores not uh, covering it because there's a painting of a nude uh, girl who's clearly been uh, raped or or something bad has happened um, to her. So anyway, I like it for that reason because it does uh, provide just a little bit of thread to the album to tie it to tie it back to the to the artwork, which is always a really nice thing that. That, uh, that bands can do, you know, sometimes, sometimes just art is art, you know, like you can look at uh, some, some Storm Thorgerson uh, art, I've got a, a, a documentary called Taken by Storm that, that just profiles the art that he did, and um, sometimes he would just have an idea, and then like Pink Floyd or Led Zeppelin or whoever would just pay for him to go take a picture of something, it didn't even relate to anything, you know, later on he'd say, yeah, I was trying to capture um, you know, the images and sounds of Pink Floyd in this one picture, and you're like, yeah, I kind of see it, but it sounds like you just wanted to take a picture of, of some guy diving into a lake with no splash because it would be technically difficult and it was interesting to you, right. you know. I, I really like the fact when you can tie something back in, and that's one of those that's sort of a secret one. You have to look on the inner sleeve to, to look at the picture, but I will say that I probably spent too long on Anything Goes uh, more than it's worth, but I do like that piece of it that may not be a well-known fact uh, amongst casual fans. No, that's very that's very interesting. Uh, I never put that together. also read this morning that the um, the little knots on the cross mm -hmm. are supposed to reference Thin Lizzy. Oh, really? I don't know what that means, huh. but that's what I was reading this morning i never paid attention to that that's interesting so the final track is the hidden gem on the album in my opinion and i've talked about on this podcast numerous times the sign of a good band is one that's not scared to put a great song to close the album out yeah maybe the most unique song in their catalog mm -hmm. it's a danceable song um you know if you listen to that live era album you know Duff is like, come on, you can dance to this. Right, or whatever. yeah. <laughs> uh, it has a great bass groove to it. Um, the the most memorable part to me, of course, is the ending. And I don't know if you refer to that as like a difference, like a suite, or if it's like a, I don't know. But the 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 song completely changes the last two minutes or so. Mm -hmm. To me, one of the greatest things about seeing them in a concert is when it goes into that part and you have the. Dun, the drums slow mm -hmm. down, yep. and then when Slash kicks in with that groove, and if and if you hear him play it live, it's a little bit different than on this. Instead of like during one of the parts muting 
a chord, he kind of walks it up a little bit live and kind of holds it and sustains it a little bit longer, which is one of the great things about live music. Yeah, yeah. There's little things like that. But uh, six-minute, 13-second song for them at the time, uh, a long song. The only one longer than that was Paradise City, of course, on these Illusion albums. That would be a short song. Right. But uh, uh, really, Hidden Gem, highlight when you get to see them in concert, completely different than anything else on the album. Yeah, and this is that's one of the songs that a lot of people will claim as their favorite song over and above any of the other more poppy songs, you know, or more popular songs, I should say. Um, so that's definitely got a big fan base. I love the song. I have not always loved it. I never hated it the way that I... Or not, I hate's a strong word, but the way that I would skip over Think About You. I wouldn't listen to the album just for this. So this one kind of grew on me. I love the guitar. I love the, the, the kind of the change in the middle of the song like you're talking about. So it was always really unique to me. And to me, that was a little bit of a tip of the hat of what's to come. You know, when they started getting into really epic things on uh, on Use Your Illusions 1 and 2 and making the song be, I don't want to say progressive, because uh, that might give you a different connotation of like progressive rock and, and that sort of thing, but it was kind of progressive. Like it, the fact that it's, you know, any, <laughs> I, I could I always think that, uh, I've always told myself that I bet I could look at the average track length on any album, and I could pick out the types of bands I'm going to like based on that. If the average track length is three and a half minutes, I'm probably not going to like you. You wrote that for the radio because there's certain payouts that happen at the different levels. This was clearly not written for radio. This was clearly one of their longer songs, and it was kind of a, a look at things to come because it had so many different phases to it. Um, and so, anyway, I really like the song now, Love It Live. Uh, I don't know why it didn't have that big of an impression on me at first, but Slash is, this is some of the first hints um, to me where Slash's solos, you can kind of hear some Led Zeppelin in it. You go listen to Led Zeppelin Custard Pie, you can hear Jimmy Page's guitar and the way that he's playing those notes. It To me, it, it sounds like Rocket, or I'm sorry, Rocket Queen sounds like the solo from Custard Pie, and at least it has the same feel to it, you know. So, I'm a fan, I'm a fan now, I love, I love hearing it live. Uh, probably one of the highlights of the, when I saw them live. Right. Um, but, and you wouldn't expect that either. But. Yeah, like we said, one of the great closing tracks uh, uh, on any album and uh, a very good way to, to send us into uh, what was to come for Guns N' Roses. Like I said, uh, a great live song that we both really enjoy. All right, Kyle, so as we end the track-by-track analysis of the album, um we would have to think about the legacy of this album now. Like we said, initially panned by a lot of critics, um, a lot of retrospective analysis. Uh, people are going back and saying it's one of the greatest albums of all time. Uh, if you go on like a Wikipedia page for this, they they list like all the different lists this thing's on. Like one has it as like the 27th best album of the 80s, and then one has it as like the 11th best album of all time. Um, any list that does not have it in the top two or three greatest debut albums of all time, in my opinion, is flawed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agree. Flawed from the beginning. All right, so we were we were discussing earlier when Kyle and I were prepping for this. There was a couple of things that happened with this album that it took a few years to really appreciate, and what I mean by that is they came out of the LA Sunset Strip. They're on the Sunset Sunset Strip with Striper with Rat. Motley Crue, mm-hmm. Faster Pussycat, uh, L.A. Guns. Obviously, they know Tracy very well. And the music that came from that obviously got so cookie-cutter, so polished, 
so by the numbers that it didn't take much for it to be killed by by grunge. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was drawing the syringe up, and grunge just what pushed it into the vein. Yeah, but th- this album, like I said, they they came from these people. These were their friends. These were their contemporaries. But yet they put out an album that, for the most part, I don't think falls in that category. Now, my co-host Chris is adamant that it is, and he gets mad when they say they're not, you know, a hair metal band. Oh wow, they're not. But but <laughs> but, but it's so easy as not Doctor Feelgood. No, no. It is so interesting that people will say that because when when somebody calls them, even when somebody says, "Oh, I don't like heavy metal," like I don't I don't like you know Guns and Roses heavy metal, I'm like. They're not heavy metal. They're hard rock. I mean, it's a very clear distinction for me. They're clearly not heavy metal. They're clearly hard rock. In the same, and to me, you're, you, the, the pendulum swings in the totally opposite direction. They're glam metal. No, they're not. They are hard rock all day, you know? Uh, they did come from that era, but yeah, I would I would probably arm wrestle Chris if I heard him say that in front of me. It would, to me, it would be like <laughs> saying ACDC is, is, is glam. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, there's more. There's more similarities between Guns N' Roses and ACDC than Guns N' Roses and Poison. Yeah. Uh, how would have history been different had Slash gotten the job in Poison instead of? Jeez, man. CC Deville. I don't know. When you when you mentioned that earlier, I know that I had read that and heard that multiple times through the years. But it's like one of those things that I guess I refuse to commit to memory because it's like it just doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> you uh-huh. know. Um, I don't know. I don't know how, I mean, Poison would not have become Guns N' Roses. I mean, he, you know, Slash's influence on, on, uh, on music is indelible. I mean, you can hear his, when he covers something uh, on somebody else's album or whatever, you can hear Slash. So I have a strong feeling that Poison would have been a more Slash-sounding Poison, but Poison was a different machine, you know. One of the great things about Slash is he's not scared to tip his hat to his influences. Yeah. And he can turn into a fanboy real quick when he, like he, Leslie West a Mountain, you know, he and Slash are big buddies and I saw an interview with Leslie West and he's like, Slash is always like, man, how do you, how do you get that tone on Mississippi Queen? You know, and of course he, uh, you know, he played with uh, Michael Jackson, mm-hmm. the black or white. I mean, he can, yeah. he can play anything, and, but I've just always liked that, that, He's not scared to say, you know, hey, these are the people that influence me, and whenever I can help them out, I'm going to. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he talks all the time about Aerosmith Rocks as uh, yeah. being like one of the. And Nikki Six says the same thing. That, that album really influenced a lot of people that came out of that that LA scene. But as we get back to the legacy of it, obviously it showed that you could have music from that time, from that area, and it not be poison or, or, or trickster or, or whatever yeah uh which you know and i think you had a lot of people that were diehard rock fans that maybe became of age in the late 70s and they had acdc and they had that first def leppard album they had you know thin lizzy and then they were kind of probably put off a little bit by rat and quiet right mm-hmm. and things like that and i think this was much of the way greta van fleet has like inspired the Zeppelin fans I kind of feel like at this t- this gave those kind of people something to sink their teeth into and really get into versus the, the, the cookie cutter rock that was going on yeah I mean I, I can only imagine at the end of the 80s that there was people who just wished Aerosmith would get their stuff together and be like they were in the 70s because the Aerosmith of the 80s was, was turning you know it was Janie's Got a Gun and it was Pump Album that was 91 I guess but anyway there was a number of 
of, of of they were understanding how to work the MTV music machine, you know, and they Aerosmith started sounding much different. You go back and listen to Toys in the Attic, Rocks, um, and I think it was it just called Wings or or Aerosmith, Aerosmith, whatever. Get, get your Wings. Yeah, and so you go back and listen to those. That is straight ahead rock and roll, you know. It and they started turning at that point. So I can't help but think the same way that Greta Van Fleet is reinvigorating uh, people like me who's a Led Zeppelin fan and there's nobody out there that sounds like that. To me, Greta Van Fleet almost sounds too much like Led Zeppelin rather than paying tribute to them. Like, some of their songs could be Zeppelin songs, which is a tribute to in and of itself. You know, that's an impressive uh, statement um, uh, about a band that they, can, that they can sound that good, that they can literally uh, write music that could have been done by Led Zeppelin. Uh, but I think there was... I can't help but think that there was a faction of people in the 80s that felt like they were missing something. They didn't know what it was, but then when Appetite came out, it was like, this is it. This is what I needed, you know? So it was hard to argue with that. Yeah, you know, and if you were a person that was really big into heavy metal, like, you know, Metallica, Megadeth, Iron Maiden and stuff, this is something you could listen to in front of those people and they're not going to give you the stink eye over. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because you, you whip that... Uh, you whip that Trickster album or, or Firehouse <laughs> album out, and man, you got problems. Right, right, yeah. You know? All right, so uh, we talked about the legacy. Uh, you well, want... real quick before yeah. we leave the legacy, I think, you know, if you think about the influence of MTV on this album, you know, um, I, I don't you don't, I don't want to say, like, you know, would the Beatles have been the Beatles without that Ed Sullivan show? Well, probably. I mean, because there wasn't, you know, everything went through one medium at the time, and if you were on Ed Sullivan, you had the eyes and ears of the entire nation, practically, right? And so, um, but the Beatles were still a solid band. I don't love them, and I don't listen to them a lot, but I mean, it's hard to argue with the Beatles, you know, in terms of, of uh, their influence on music, period. And um, when Guns N' Roses went, um, after this album was released, like you said, the first six months, it was kind of, it just kind of faltered, like nothing was going on. They go to Europe... And they're playing shows over there. And when they come back, it's like the MTV effect had taken over. And then it was nonstop Guns N' Roses. And that's when the rocket ship took off. And so um, I've often questioned that because, yes, it is one of the biggest debut albums of all time. Is it an MTV effect? I don't know the answer to that. Um, I don't feel comfortable saying that, no, it never would have been as big. But are there other gems out there we haven't heard just because MTV's not our conduit anymore? I don't know. I'm sure that there are. I, I surprise myself every once in a while when I find some music like that. But to me, uh, to speak about the legacy of this album, you have to pay uh, some sort of homage to uh, to MTV for its influence on it because Guns even says that. It's like, we got back from Europe and it was a different ball game. I couldn't go to the store anymore, you know, like because people recognized me and, and there was an expectation set around me as being a rock star. And, uh, and that happened, you know. When, and no more did that take effect than on the Illusion albums. Because they millions of dollars put into those videos. Strange. Oh, yeah. November Rain. Uh, all of that. All right. So, obviously, uh, this album just passed a big milestone. 30 years. That's really weird. Because I think, like, I think back. To, all right. So, when this album came out, if you would have set in 87, if you would have been like, oh, it's the 30th anniversary of something... It'd be like the Temptations, or <laughs> right. you know, you're like, oh my gosh, or Buddy Holly. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I used to think like, there's no way I would have listened to that kind of stuff when I was growing up because it's so old. And now, like, this seems like yesterday. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yep. All right. So you are obviously an Uber fan, and you've got. Did you did you get the thousand dollar box set? Did, did I, I am an Uber fan, but I'm also. 
maybe too pragmatic for a thousand dollar box set. It did come with a lot of stuff. I mean, and I can see where if somebody was going to throw down, you know, money on something, it did come with a with a lot of things. I probably would have done nothing with other than let it sit in the box. And so, but I did get excited about it. It, it had it had less stuff and been priced a little bit cheaper than I might would have. But I mean, they they literally just threw like, hey, you think fans will like pins? Like, throw the pins in there. What about a banner? Throw a banner in there. You know, so it's like I fe I felt like I was buying like a mini stage setup. Uh, or some sort of a, you know, something I could have made a voodoo doll out of. Did it, did it sell well? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it was a limited run. Any kind of thing like that's a limited run. I don't know if it sold out or not. I haven't I haven't checked on it. Once once I looked at it and I thought, okay, because that was the first big teaser that came out. I was like, well, I hope it's something different, <laughs> you know, for the 30th, like, that most people could afford or most people would want to, to work with. And so then I saw... Um, when they when I saw that the vinyl uh, was a the vinyl package with the CD and just the CD alone were options, I was like, okay, that's probably what I'm going to get. And um, I've been buying vinyl. I'm probably about eighty strong or something something like that now. And I don't, I still don't know why I haven't bought this one yet. Um, but I the uh, what was the thing? There was a repressing of a lot of famous albums in like two thousand six to eight, right when vinyl was being uh, like the resurgence of vinyl. And so Appetite got remastered for vinyl release, and um, and that it sounds great. Uh, the one the one that um, uh, the one that that they did then. And so like I kind of feel like it already got its treatment. And so my rationale, and maybe I was just being too practical with it, but my rationale was I'll buy the CD, but I don't know if I want to buy the vinyl, or I'll buy the vinyl after I listen to the CD and determine that it's that much different. Um, and to be honest, I haven't gone back to listen to the vinyl and compared it to this remaster. Now, remastering, when you remaster something, uh, you can do it for different formats. So you'll see things like mastered for iTunes or mastered for Spotify or whatever. So they're, they're really honing in on different uh, parts of the audio spectrum based on when, uh, you know, whether it's a lossy format or lossless or whatever in terms of compression algorithms. Um, and so um, I, I don't want to, I don't know, like I'm really happy with this remastering of the CD, uh, or the CD version of it rather. I don't, I don't know, I'm just, I don't know why I'm not pulling the trigger on that, considering it is one of my favorite albums of all time, why I'm just not buying the thing. I, I guess I'm just hesitant because I don't want to not like it, you know. <laughs> um, in the same regard of I bought, uh, if you look for Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 on vinyl, uh, the pressings that are out now, I have no idea why they haven't repressed this thing, or at least they haven't last. I checked uh, about six months ago. You'll see a little sticker on the back that says, uh, Made in the Czech Republic. Um, I, I don't think that they mastered it for vinyl format. I think it's just ripped straight from the CD, and it sounds like it. It just, the vinyl does not sound very good um, as compared to Appetite for Destruction. And so I guess that's another one of my things. I don't want to think that they'll screw this one up, because if, if this is a big re-release... -re uh, but I think that there's something subconscious going on with me as to why I haven't haven't uh, purchased the vinyl. But anyway, the long answer to your your very short question. Actually, I forgot the question. But, but I just, just end up some having of the, the CD. Some of the kind of the the B sides and unheard versions. You you mentioned them earlier. What are some of the highlights for you? I mean, and that as actually I, I forgot to mention that as well. Um, I decided I was going to get the two CD version, not just the the remastered album, because I wanted to hear some of these B sides. And I mean, so you got 18 tracks strong on, on CD2, which is the B-sides, EPs, and more. And they basically packaged lies with this, with the exception of one song, and that one song is One in a Million. So the first four songs on this album, Reckless Life, uh, Nice Boys, Moved to the City, and Mama Ken, were all the first tracks, first four tracks from Lies. 
um, and it was recorded around that same time prior to the recording of um, of uh, Appetite, but the sound it was recorded around the time of the Sound City recordings. So to me, they put these in, sort of in chronological order to some extent. Um, so you've got those four songs. You got Shadow of Your Love, and then it goes into uh, Sound uh, City sessions of what eventually made it on Appetite. Um, and then you got a live knocking on heaven's door, whole lot of Rosie. So two covers there, and those were ones. In addition to Heartbreak Hotel, that was another one that they covered a lot. That doesn't, you, I mean, you can find them online now, but to hear them covering an Elvis song is uh, interesting. You know, an interesting pick from that standpoint. To me, uh, you listen to um, Knocking on Heaven's Door, and that sounds like a Guns N' Roses song should sound, whereas Heartbreak Hotel just simply doesn't. You know, I think that was just a set filler, if you ask me. So. Um, and then it goes into the rest of what lies would be. So they kind of sliced it in the middle. And uh, they've got You're Crazy, Patience, and Used to Love Her. Um, not in the correct track order, but uh, but in the... Uh, but at least that's the, the track order of lies, that is. And then they left off uh, left off One in a Million. For pretty obvious reasons we may, shouldn't get into, but there's a, quite some controversy around that when it first came out in terms of uh, racial slurs and some slang and stuff that, that Axel kind of tossed in there lyrically. And so it makes perfect sense why the decision was made. If, if we're going to package this together as a CD too, we're not going to remaster Lies. We're not going to re-release Lies because of that controversial song. I assume that's what, what it is or why the reason that they made this decision. But your question was, is there a standout? That's a hard one, because if you take away... The reason why I did that big setup was, well, this is basically lies, plus studio outtakes, plus a couple of live songs, you know? So, um, and it's a couple of live songs that did not make live air. And so, uh, I don't know. Um, I do not like the live or studio version of Shadow of Your Love. To me, it's like a think about you. It, it's just not, just not what I like. I think my favorite part of this was hearing what would become the hits that, that they were. So to hear Welcome to the Jungle in its form, and, uh, and in fact it had, you know, that really slow part that, uh, that kind of breaks the song about three minutes in or before the um, it picks back up with down, that part. So they actually did that twice in the original. And you can tell, I don't, I, I'm probably making this up, I don't really know, but you can tell the influence of a producer on that album. Of them, of them hearing, at least I'm assuming that that's what it'll be. Maybe it's just the band played it enough to to realize that they only needed one little break in the song like that. But um, I, I think I appreciated, um, I'm not going to give you a straight answer. I think I appreciated, though, having listening to those songs to hear what they would ultimately become. Because you could hear the basic structure. Most everything that Axel said lyrically stayed the exact same. There's a couple of little things that sounded different. Um... And one of them in particular was my Michelle. He said, "You can um, you can keep on partying, and I'll go get the key." And uh, that was a uh, to me they improved upon the lyric uh, in my Michelle by saying, uh, "You can party through your connection calls, and I'll go get the key," or something like that. Uh, I really enjoyed hearing what what those were in their more raw forms. Um, so that that's my long answer. This an indirect answer to your question. <laughs> so do you think it was money well spent? Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. For considering, I mean, this probably was 15 or $17 for a, a double CD remastering. And in fact, a remastering of one of my favorite albums. Um, in fact, I have now replaced the remastered version on my, like I've got an iPod Classic because I'm from 2004. And, but, I, but I have that in my car. And I've, I've ripped all of my, I'm becoming an audiophile snob because I've decided I don't have other hobbies. So I don't, I don't, I don't work with wood. 
Um, I don't watch sports. I don't really have anything other than music. And so I've decided I'm just going to spend an ungodly amount of money on audio stuff. And one of the decisions that I made was to, uh, to, to make sure that all of my music is in a non-lossy format. And so I've ripped all of my CDs and, uh, it, into the, the 44-1, 16-bit, uh, 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 lossless formats. And, um, and for this one, I, I put all those on my iPod. That way I can listen to it all. Like basically, all, most of the catalog I would want to listen to in CD quality in my car. And I've actually replaced the original with this remaster. And in, in a couple of cases, I'll keep them both. Uh, so when Pink Floyd uh, remastered a lot of their albums in 2011, uh, they did a campaign to remaster their entire catalog, and uh, I've got both versions of like The Wall and and uh, you know Animals and a few that I just I'm so used to hearing the original that I want to hear the original sometimes. In this case, to me, they did exactly what you should do when you remaster. You know, techniques change, things change about the way we pre uh, prefer to hear music places where you listen to music change. And so um, to me, all they did, if you can imagine looking at a piece of sheet music and having like a, a sort of an opaque-ish uh, slip cover in front of it so that it kind of distorts the image, kind of like in your shower or something, it just kind of distorts the, distorts the image behind it. So if you can imagine looking at a piece of sheet music and having that opaque-ish looking thing over it, to me, what a good remastering does is it just lifts that off, or it just replaces it with a clearly transparent piece. Everything that was there before is still there. They didn't remix anything. In other words, they didn't necessarily bring drums up or down or whatever. Um, at least, and actually they could have in this one, but, um, but I was just making a distinction between mixing and mastering. But in this case, they did exactly what you should do with a master, with a remastering. Just make it a little bit more clear. We've got better technologies now. Lower the noise floor a little bit to the extent that you can because this was recorded on analog and then transferred to digital for this release, for this release, uh, not for the analog. Um, they all they did to me was they just made everything a little bit clearer. You know, they lifted that they lifted that opaqueness off of it just a touch, and I think they did a phenomenal job because this is one of those albums you don't want to do it too much. You know, if you know what the wall is, uh, look, sounds like rather. Um, you don't want to monkey with that too much. And, and so I think James Guthrie, when he redid The Wall and remastered The Wall, did a good job to that respect. You know, add, added a little bit more bass, a little bit more umph when it needs it. And you can tell that um, on this album as well. Made the drums just a little bit more crisp. Everything about it was just a little bit fresher, you know. But it still sounds like the album that I fell in love with. So to me, this was money well spent. I would hands down... Um, I'm not a big fan of going out and buying remasters because sometimes it's just a it's a ploy to get another pressing and to get more people to buy it. And so I'm kind of hesitant to, to buy a lot of things. But I bought Metallica's remasters, except for Injustice for All, because I refuse to buy it until they, they make the bass right. <laughs> until they, and that may be another podcast, uh, uh, totally another podcast day. But I rebought those and rebought Pink Floyd's uh, because, again, it's one of my top bands of all time. And things have changed since the 70s. They can make the sound better uh, by remastering. So I put this in that same camp. One of the better remastered albums that I've heard. Money well spent, and I would do it again if I lost this one. That's good to hear. Well, I sure do wish they would go out on tour, play it from beginning to end, and bring Adler back for it. It would be... Man, that was the rumor. I mean, that was the, that was what the rumors were, and, and uh, I... I, I, you got to believe that they wanted to. I mean, you, you know he made it to some of the, the sessions where they were rehearsing, and 
I think they just had to make the collective decision. And Axel's like, I've been playing with was it Frank Ferrier? For, yeah. Uh, it, I've been playing with him for years, and he's he's tight. He's got the sound, and why would we mix this up just for the sake of that? And so then they did the to me the appropriate head nod. Bring him out a couple of times because he's that that boy is excited every time he talks about Guns and Roses. I mean, he's still a, he's a fanboy of his own band, you know, mm-hmm. and he still really loves everybody in the band. At least uh, that's the impression that he gives. And uh, but he's just in a different spot after having a stroke and after dealing with drugs and all that. He's uh, he's a different a different person. But he's still got the swing. And they just can't seem to get the Howard Hughes of rock. Is he straddling? Jeffrey Dean Isbell. Man, yeah. Uh, yeah. Out of uh, out of hiding. Of course, Izzy came out and said they didn't want to divide the loot. Up, they didn't want to divide the loot. Yeah. Which is a clat like it just sounds like something Izzy would say. All right. So as we close this out, we we've talked about. Um, you know, we've talked about Axel, Slash, Adler, Duff. Uh, by far, anybody that has any knowledge of this band from the beginning says so much of their success is because of Izzy Stradlin. Mm-hmm. That he helped shape the image, the sound. It's like you were saying last night when we were talking at that Mule show. He's okay with being Keith Richards. Yeah. He doesn't have to be the guy with the solos. Uh, he was, Whenever he's on stage, he's the coolest guy on the stage. Yeah. And he knows it. Um, just so much of their early sound. And I really think, you know, you you hear the absence of his influence on those live versions of Illusion, the Illusion Tour with Gilby Clark. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. there's nothing wrong with Gilby Clark. I mean, he's, he wants to be Keith Richards, too. You right, know? I mean, yeah. He's a huge... But, Izzy Stradlin is is about every book that I've read, everybody that you talked to that was around them then says that if there's not Izzy, this band is drastically different. Yeah, yeah, and that's a profound statement. Um, and I, it, I, it's one of those things that it's easy for a rhythm person not to get credit. The same way it's probably easy for a drummer not to get credit. If you really know what you're talking about and you have a a, a, a fine ear for that sort of thing, uh, you you have you can make some more uh, I guess some deeper observations about that sort of stuff. But yeah, I get it. And I, I don't think I always would have said that. To me, Guns N' Roses was Matt Sorum and Gilby Clark because that's when I saw them uh, in terms of like the Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 uh, concert from Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, So it didn't bother me that I didn't have Izzy. But now I can see the influence that he had and I understand it. And you go you go listen to Izzy uh, in the Juju. Uh, what was it? Izzy Stradlin and the Juju Hounds. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I couldn't remember if it was his full name or not. But anyway, go listen to Izzy Straddle and the Juju Hounds. You can hear what he did. Like, that was his influence because that is him now doing it. He's he's running everything. Um, was he the best lyricist? I'm not sure, you know. Uh, was no, he because the... his solo stuff proves that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's so... Uh, clearly, Axel brought that to the table. He did write a couple of songs. I don't know if any of them... Did he write the lyrics for It's So Easy? I'm forgetting now. But anyway, he wrote a couple. Um... But uh, he his influence on the band was as a backseat driver, you know, and 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 that's probably the place that it needed to be, uh, because you you don't really have an out front rhythm person. If you have an out front rhythm person, they're usually not in rhythm, you know, <laughs> and they're right. usually trying to be a to to be a lead player. But um, yeah, it, it's without question that he, in the same way that Stevens got that swagger on the drum kit. He's got the swagger that matched that on rhythm guitar, and that's hard to do. I've been playing guitar for for thirty years now, and um, I can't. I'm not a rhythm player. 
I mean, I, I can play, I'm a little, I'm sloppy, you know, I, I'm, I, I like to have a good rhythm section and then I can play lead on top of that and kind of cover up some of my mistakes and my lack of timing and that sort of thing. But that's also what gives lead players the swagger that they have. It's not being a rhythm. It's being a half step ahead or behind or, you know, being able to sweep things uh, and, uh, and, to, and to play, um, to play in, a, in a fundamentally different way. That's why you're accenting the song, but the rhythm section has got to be right. rhythm, you know. And so uh, that's clearly something that he brought to the band. That uh, I mean, I hate I hate that they couldn't make something work out. I would love to have seen him back. And I gotta admit, he must be still cashing royalty checks because I don't care if they wanted to split the loot equally. If I'm just hanging out in Indiana and I've got an opportunity to go, you know, this is me putting myself in somebody else's shoes, which you should never do. But I mean, what I wish he would have said is like, okay, it's fine. I get it. Like I'm um, I'm a I'm a different person. Y'all have been a different band without me. Um, just give me, you know, 500000 to show and I'll go show up. Right, and he, like, clearly, he clearly has a good rep- a good rapport with them still because with the later versions of Guns N' Roses, he would show up from time to time and play with them. Yeah. And, of course, he was going to be in, Re- in Velvet Revolver for a while. They flew him out there. He helped write some of those songs. Mm-hmm. You know, but he then he said he just didn't like working with lead singers. That's uh, funny, yeah. Which is funny. I, think, I always think Izzy has the best of both worlds. If you think about bands... Where everybody knows the names of everybody in the band, you know. Obviously, you think Led Zeppelin, you think the Beatles, you think um, uh, Van Halen, mm-hmm. those kind of bands. Everybody knows the members of the band. Everybody knows the names of the Five Guys and Guns and Roses. But Izzy Stradlin could walk in this Shell gas station down here from where, where we're recording, and nobody would know who he was. Yeah, yeah. Except that he looks like a rock star just because of the way he dresses. You right, know? <laughs> right. Uh, anyway, Kyle, uh, this has been a blast. Uh, this is one that uh, I've really been looking forward to recording. Uh, like I said, I, a lot of people ha- have really wanted us to do this. Uh, Steve Tomer, one of our uh, very loyal listeners, ha- has asked me about this before. And uh, so, Steve, I hope we did it justice. I know it's your favorite album, and it, it kind of really changed, you know, your musical life as well. So, um, any closing, any closing thoughts? Um, man, when are you gonna have me back? What's next? <laughs> yeah, so yeah, so we'll we can do this. We can. Uh, we've actually, Colin, I've actually kind of talked back and forth maybe about doing Chinese Democracy. Um, I think that would be a fun one. To that do. would be a fun one just because of the roller coaster that it is. Well, and there's you know? no emotional attachment to it, so you can be objective. Yeah, that's true. That is um, true. You know, you're gonna have like this. You know, for you, this is it's kind of like I always talk about the Black Crow Southern Harmony and Music Companion is my favorite album of all time. I can't be objective on it. Right, yeah, yeah. You know, and you, I, at times, I feel like you might not be able to be objective on this. I was proud that I could admit that I don't like Think About You, you know? <laughs> I mean, you know, but, uh, but Baby yeah. Steps. Yeah. Baby Steps. Well, uh, as we leave, everybody, uh, you know the routine. Follow us on Twitter, Digital Kill. Like our page on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram. And uh, subscribe to our podcast. If you get a chance, please leave us a review on iTunes or uh, Podchaser. Uh, that would that would help us greatly, and uh, you can ask numerous of our of our other listeners that have done that. Um, we'll send you a little something in the mail as a token of thanks. And we do always think uh, thank everybody for listening. And our uh, download numbers are steadily increasing uh, worldwide and and here in America. And so we really appreciate that. Uh, Chris and I'll be back with you shortly for another episode. Until then, take care, everybody. <laughs>